little content warning. Uh, on this episode, we yet again discuss assorted uh, ethnic slurs aimed primarily but not only at Jews. If that makes you uncomfortable, your podcast app has many other podcasts you can listen to. And we're talking about high-class motherfucker, right? That's the anti-Jewish slur? That's the anti-Jewish slur. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom, uvracha. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello to you. Our Gentile of the week is Noreen Malone, who kicked off one of the great eras in unorthodox history when she was last on our show. And as the Gentile of the week, she asked us about the term Jap and whether people were still using it. And we ended up spending weeks and weeks talking about that term. And, and we, we're having her back. And this time she's talking about her new podcast. It's Slow Burn. It's from uh, Slate Studios. And it talks about the buildup to the Iraq war. Our Jew of the week is Daniel Pollock Pelsner, the professor at Linfield College in Oregon, who was just fired uh, for a host of reasons that he's going to talk to us about. Stephanie also spoke with tablet contributor Donna Kessler, who recently wrote a great piece for the tablet website about Turkish-Israeli music. But before we get to all those interviews, guys, I have something I have to show you. You ready? Are you ready for this? Are you looking, oh, are you looking at our shared, are you looking at our shared Zoom screen? Okay, so you guys know my buddy Eric Ackland in, uh, in Pittsburgh. He runs Amazing Books and Records. The one and I've the signed only. up... I've signed up for his monthly service where I automatically send him a certain amount of shekels a month and he curates a selection of books that he sends to me. It's a, it's a great service. It's a great present. You can get someone. So but my does books he fold the shekels into like some flower design or just he just you <laughs> caches them? It's Canadian shekels folded <laughs> into origami. Uh, as we In denominations of 18. So, right, exactly. It, with gematria, you know, that spells out your child's name. So this month, my selection of books arrived and it was, it was the library book by Susan Orlean and it was an old edition of some Mark Twain. He really knows me. And then it was this book. And I'm just, I'm just going to show it to you. Oh my, God. <laughs> oh my Lord. Okay. So this book is a book called, and, and tr trigger warning for those who don't like anti-Jewish slurs, it's called Kike. Exclamation mark. In quotes. Exclamation point. And the cover is a very Jew, very Jewish looking man uh, bent over a, uh, a scroll of a, a book of some sort. He looks so angry. So angry. An angry Jew deep in his Talmud with a hat on and a beard. He looks like a little hipstery. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this book? It's a beautiful hardbound book with the Mylar cover. And I'm thinking, what is this? And it's edited by Michael Selzer. I don't know who that is. Forward by well-known Jewish writer Herbert Gold. And it turns out it was published in 1972. And it was a volume in the Ethnic Prejudice in America series, which was put out by Times Books. It was like a serious publishing house that did a, 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 a series of books documenting different prejudices against different groups. So this was this the Jewish book. This was the Jewish book and it was called <laughs> Siri just went off. Siri, find so, kike. Oh my god, Siri just said, Siri, find kike. <laughs> this is going so off the rails. So this is Kike, exclamation point, a documentary history of anti-Semitism in America, right? Edited by Michael Selzer, who it turns out was a professor at Brooklyn College. He's disappeared off the grid. I can't find him anymore. 1972. Other books in the series included Chink, exclamation point, a documentary history of anti-Chinese prejudice, Mick, exclamation point, a documentary history of anti-Irish prejudice, and WAP, exclamation point, a documentary history of anti-Italian prejudice. And in 1972, a major publisher was publishing a series of books, the titles of which were ethnic slurs, and the books were serious scholarly studies of the use of those slurs and the bigotry against those peoples. Now, wait, this is the best published by... Straight Arrow Books, a division of world publishing, Times Mirror, serious stuff. Okay, on the on the copyright page, it says, 
staff members of the American Jewish Committee, the Jewish Division of the New York Public Library, and the Library of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York provided advice and assistance, which were invaluable in the preparation of this volume. So it has like practically a hecture from the American Jewish Committee. So apropos of our conversation about can you use this these Jewish slurs, this is where American culture was in the early 70s, was people were a mix of what I want to say was mature and also irreverent enough that they would put out a hardcover scholarly book named Kike or Wop or Mick. Like this moment, I can't even- Collect, collect them all. Like, right. I want to go on Amazon and per- it seems like Mick was never actually published. It's listed on a page here, like in the series, but it doesn't seem that copies exist. But Chink and Wop, you can buy on Amazon. I've never heard Mick and Wop. Like those are words that I never actually engage. I mean, sort of of the era of Kike, right? Like these words where I'm like, I guess at some point someone said that in a derogatory way, but like, ooh. It's so weird anyway, hearing those words. So this book is now in my house and I absolutely want to find Michael Selzer, the, the Brooklyn College professor who compiled this book and also wrote some serious volumes of anti-Zionism and, and anti-Israeli uh, scholarship and seems like he was a pretty interesting cat and I want to find him. And um, yeah. Now, look, while we're making light of the fact that there were scholarly books titled with these slur words, I don't want to minimize their importance, especially the ones that I've never been subjected to. Now, I've never been subjected to the K word, but I've definitely never been at risk of being subjected to these other slurs. But of course, a lot of our listeners have. There are Jews of Chinese ancestry, Italian ancestry, Irish ancestry. So if any of you have ever been subjected to any of those slurs, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you make of the role of those slurs in today's world. Give us a call, 914-570-4869, or write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Do those slurs seem as antiquated to you as the K-word seems to me? Uh, Anyway, um, what's up with you, Liel? Well, I have very different reading material, much lighter, much more festive, uh, also very Jewish, because this week I received an email from your lovely wife. This is amazing. So Sid Oppenheimer, the the, the better Oppenheimer, the Oppenheimer everyone loves far more. Yep. Um, sent an email to everyone attending the bat mitzvah of Elizabeth Oppenheimer this Shabbos, which I am dearly looking forward to. Uh, and and I read this this email. It was a set of instructions and sort of like what to expect when you know you're arriving. Um, and look, I am really sorry if this is just my overactive imagination. I do not mean to cast any aspersions here on on the on the wider. Oppenheimer, Fremer family. But it seemed to me like Sid was writing with like three or four very specific relatives in mind when she was writing things like, the services are long. So if you have to check your freaking iPhone, step outside of the show, <laughs> Uncle Herbert. You know, it, it read like it's a very kind of, we know the drill. We have we have some kids. We've been to bat mitzvahs before. We know you guys can't hack it. Let us like idiot proof the ceremony for you. Am I correct? Are these instructions on sort of like what to expect during the bat mitzvah have, uh, have a, an audience of us uh, three or four relatives in mind? I will neither confirm nor deny that Uncle Herbert uh, may have checked his iPhone at somebody else's bat mitzvah at some point uh, <laughs> in the past. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like if you send enough emails with enough explicit instructions about how to behave in a public Jewish setting, people will will get the point. But yes, no, it was it was tastefully done. I'm glad. I'm glad that the message, the the clenched jaw and seething tone got through. No, listen, I loved it because in part, I mean, this is Stephanie always, you know, helpfully reminds us of this, but we kind of have all 
sort of forgotten how to behave in public with each other. So it was actually really refreshing to be like, okay, guys, you have not been with other people for a year and a half. You've gone a bit feral, so. And this is a house of worship. Exactly. Let me remind you what you can and cannot do. You need to wear pants. That's a rule. Take your weekly shower that morning. (laughs) Mark, your daughter's getting bas bas mitzvah this weekend. How do you feel? Bas mitzvah. Parshas Bechar Bechukatai. It's it is on. We are could not be more excited or more proud. So yeah, good times. Really, really good times. But Nick, you got some good times. What's going on? I you know we actually haven't seen each other in quite some time now. And um, there's actually something I want to share with you. Um, hold on. Let me let me stand up. Ooh, another show and tell. This is another show and tell. You. <laughs> None of us has stood hold up on. in a year and a half. Hold on. Hold on. Can you see? Oh my! Oh my God! Oh my God! Stephanie Budnick, what's um, that? Budnick, there seem to be two of you. Speaking of uh, life changes, rites of passage, I am pregnant, and baby Budnick Cohen is joining the unorthodox family in August. Baby Budnick Cohen is that that the BBC, (laughs) the baby Budnick Cohen, BBC. Okay, so. So tell us everything. So what, due date? August 6th, save the date. Okay, so day after my birthday, this is a strong week. A Leo, a Leo child is amazing. Boy, girl, not saying? Lil gal. Oh my. Lil girl. Oh my. Yeah. And uh, name? To be named Trudy Hope Shlomowitz Butnik Cohen. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I was actually really invested in that competition for, you know, for personal reasons. Uh, No, we- I'm just going to keep asking until you tell us it's none of our business, but name? Um, I, we, we're, we have a lot, we have some, we have some good, good, good picks in the mix, but nothing, nothing. Social security number, political affiliation. <laughs> Stephanie, I, that is so exciting. I'm going to begin crocheting the onesie please, tonight. Please. I'm going to crochet um, the onesie tonight. Make it extra thick for that August baby. Like that, I, that's something I'm going, going to show my love for this child by not crocheting anything and, and purchasing <laughs> something from people who know how to make it. Oh my, this is exciting. This is fabulous. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Basha'a Tova. Thank right? you. Basha'a Tova. I always get that wrong. Yeah. That's what we say, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it means what? Like in good time? This is in so, good time. so, 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 so amazing. amazing. Josh and Sarah will begin working on your audio setup from the hospital bed right now. Yes. I mean, yes. I, I will work. Yes. Of course. Live yeah. stream in. I'll be on Zoom you have to during tell, the labor. You have to tell the hospital you, that you have special needs. They include a sure microphone, a mixed pre three. Uh, How soundproof is this room? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really what the problem is, we're going to need a bigger closet. I think is this is my main takeaway. Uh, <laughs> News of the Jews. Um, A few really, really, really quick hits before we get to the main story this week. First of all, one of y'all who is on social media, tell me about the really special thing that I hear happened on social media this week. So, you know, when we put together the newest Jewish encyclopedia, we always hope that the people who were featured in it would like someday see it and see what we've said about them. And and this came true this weekend in an unexpected way. Monica Lewinsky posted on Twitter that she bought the newest Jewish encyclopedia for her mother as a 73rd birthday gift. She refers to her as the OG Jewopedia, who's like the, you know, like Wikipedia. And she says, I got her this book without even looking inside it. And what a nice surprise, because the Monica Lewinsky entry, as she, you know, puts as there's a photo of this on, on Twitter now, 
reads, American activist, television personality, fashion designer, and prominent anti-bullying activist. Think something's missing? Fight us. She basically said a real present for her mother to, to remind us how, how much times have changed. So I love that. I love that. Love the love from Monica Lewinsky. Love the love from Mrs. Lewinsky. I love Monica her mom. Lewinsky. I would, I, I hope that this gets to her, but we would love to have Monica on the show. Yes. And her mother. And Together. I can't. Why and not? her mother. That, <gasps> Mother's Day is coming. It, it, we would be late on it. We would miss it this year. But let's let's get to work on that. I will reveal that here in Connecticut, the news is not as rosy. There were some swastikas painted on the campus of the University of Connecticut, UConn, up in stores. And I just want to say that um, according to uh, to the arrest that was made anyway, the perpetrator was one Christopher Peeper, age uh, 21. Christopher with a K Christopher from Enfield, Connecticut, a, 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 a wonderful city, uh, home of the Enfield Square Mall. I ate so many slices at the pizza place right by the entrance to the Enfield Square Mall uh, before hitting up Record Town and then Steiger's. Um, and... Uh, it, it's hard. And then defiling a synagogue yeah. <laughs> before hitting up the pizza place and then defiling a synagogue, as you do in Enfield, apparently. As one does. He is now the shame of Enfield, Connecticut, five miles from where I grew up across the border in Springfield, Massachusetts. During questioning, Christopher with a K, Peeper, an anthropology major, as it happens, gave police a 10-page statement. If it's a 10-page statement, is it a manifesto? How many pages does it have to be before it's a manifesto? I'm impressed that college students are writing 10-page papers unprompted. <laughs> to me, a 10-page statement is the equivalent of, I don't have a question, I have a comment. It's like, dude, just say guilty or not guilty. Don't give us your life's views. But the best thing is, within the statement, he said, I do not hate Jews, I am critical of them. Which <laughs> I just think, like, that is, like, that's some serious 21st century anti-Semitism there. It's like, it's not that I, like, I don't hate Jews. Only Nazis hate Jews. I'm just critical of them. That's what my it's a real anthropology major trick. Yep. You really parsed that one. Can I tell you, this news makes me a little bit sad because you're always a little bit judged by the company you keep, right? You're kind of kind of a little bit at least defined by, by who your enemies are. We used to have like really awesome enemies. Like to me, anti-Semites, it feels a little bit like the, like the James Bond franchise. Like the first five is like, you know who the bad guy is? It's Dr. No. And he has a secret underground lair that shoots like missiles to the moon. And like by James Bond's 32, you're like, yeah, it's some, some rich guy who like bought a satellite or something. It'll be played by some Danish actor we could get on scale. It's the same thing. We used to have the Inquisition, the Nazis. Now we have Christopher Peeper. Right now we have we have senior anthropology no. majors from Edfield, I mean, Connecticut. Saying, come on, I don't hate Jews. I, look, I don't hate them. Just critical of them. Step up your game. But that's not the worst thing that happened to the Jews this week. The worst thing that happened to the Jews is we learned about a tragedy that befell one of the greatest Jews in the world. Liel, do you want to tell us about that? Perhaps the greatest, maybe. Perhaps maybe the, the greatest, greatest that, that there ever been or or will be. Ever. Since Avram and Sarah. Certainly the greatest actress <laughs> of all time because this is the one and only Gal Gadot. Uh, Gal Gadot, homegirl, uh, beloved uh, icon of the show and, and the one and only Wonder Woman, appeared uh, on Jimmy Kimmel's show and told a tale of woe that apparently happened uh, earlier in COVID. Uh, you have to watch the whole thing. It's very charming because, you know, Gal speaks with the, the original accent. And she says, eh, I was... Eh, Drinking during the day, like you do in the COVID, as a pandemic. And then you, I made the cabbage salad. Anyway, she made a cabbage salad, which is like the most adorable Israeli thing ever. And she cut off the tip of her finger. Huh. Um, and her husband, uh, sort of not really knowing what to do, threw it away. 
Her husband, Yaron. Of course, her husband, Yaron. Yaron. Why does her husband be if not Such a Yaron move. Whom she met at Camp Ramah in the Poconos in the summer of doing one hot seven. American He's summer. the Yaron from Wet Hot American Summer, which is He's confusing. He's totally I know, that Yaron. He's that Yaron. <laughs> He's like, uh, what do we do with the tip of a finger? I throw away in garbage disposal. <laughs> Uh, uh, so you should go on the internet and look for the whole sort of thing. Uh, but but to Gal Gadot, before Shlema. So I actually, I lied. That's not the worst thing that happened to the Jews this week. Uh, one, something even worse happened to an English professor, a Shakespeare scholar who teaches at Linfield College, a historically Baptist school in Oregon. His name is Daniel Pollock Pelsner. We talked about him on last week's show and the story has escalated since. And we were honored that he was able to join us and bring us up to date. Here's our discussion earlier this week with Daniel Pollock Pelsner. Professor Pollock Pelsner, thank you for coming on Unorthodox. It's probably been a stressful couple weeks for you. How are you doing? Uh, someday I'm going to sleep again, I hope. It's been rough, but I really appreciate the support and interest of colleagues around the world who understand why this is really a, a threat to everybody. So we've read a number of articles about what you've gone through at Linfield College, but do you want to sum it up in your own words now that we can go right to the source? What, what happened? The sort of simple version is I was elected to be the faculty trustee on the Linfield University Board of Trustees. And then colleagues and students came to me and told me that they had been sexually harassed by different members of the board. And when I reported those concerns to the board, the board censored my report and kicked me out of its sessions and told me I couldn't talk about it. And then they started publicly defaming me. And when I complained about the retaliation, they eventually fired me. So you were a whistleblower on matters of sexual harassment. And then at some point, it also took on a Jewy aspect. How did that come into play? The chair of the board called me into his office after I first reported sexual harassment allegations against several members of the board. And I asked for sexual harassment training for the trustees and better guidelines for interacting with students and faculty. And I naively thought that would be pretty simple to accomplish. But instead, the chair of the board accused me of having a secret agenda to grab power and said that the board never had a problem until I became a trustee. And then the president of Linfield said that I was destroying Linfield from within and that I, people like me could only show our loyalty to Linfield by following the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's like creepy anti-Semitic bingo there. <laughs> <laughs> It was the most bizarre speech I've ever heard. The president said that he was a student of history and he knew that the great empires of old had been destroyed by disloyalty from within. The Mongol Empire had been brought down by disunion and the Ottoman Empire had been brought down. And now Linfield was going to be brought down too, unless we started following the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew. So he was accusing you of being a bad Christian, basically, insufficiently Christian. Now, the school is historically Baptist, but my understanding, and I have a good friend who's an alumna, is that it's Baptist the way Duke is Methodist at this point, which is to say not, not very. You wouldn't know it at all if you took classes there. You'd only know it if you joined the Board of Trustees, where every meeting begins with a prayer. And the Baptist ministers are people of great conscience and provide a lot of moral guidance. But I think when people are under stress and they start to feel defensive, then sometimes there can be, a, you know, an impulse to scapegoat the people who seem like outsiders to that community. Am I right that then it also came out that the president of the college had made comments about Jewish noses at some point in the past? Yeah, that was, you know, my first meeting with him, the Get to Know You session. He asked 
what I was teaching. I, I'm a Shakespeare professor and I was teaching the Merchant of Venice and I told him why that play was complicated and important to me and how I talked about the history of different forms of prejudice that the play summons. And the president was very excited to tell me that if you measured the size of the average Jewish nose and you compared it to the size of the average Arab nose, you couldn't actually tell the difference. <laughs> what? That was your first meet and greet? Were you like, this is going to go really well? Or we're going to be great friends? I felt like I was in a time machine. I didn't know that people still talked about measuring the size of Jewish noses, whatever the result was, after about, I don't know, 1945 or so. But he was my boss, and I wanted to be on good terms, so I just let it go. And, and what was the soap comment that also came out in, I think, maybe one of the reports? Yeah, man, I didn't know about that until just a couple of weeks ago, but two of my professors in the psychology department said at one of their early meetings with the president, he said something, this is what they reported, he said something about how you don't give Jews soap when you're sending them to the showers. And apparently a number of other faculty colleagues witnessed this as well, and I guess the president has now tried to explain it as some, <laughs> oddly in light of what's happened, some philosophy of what the more humane way is to fire people. What does that even mean? Don't give Jews soap on the way to the shower. I can't even actually figure out what that could possibly mean as a, an idiom. I don't feel I can. I didn't witness that <laughs> comment, so I don't think I can speculate about the president's intent. I was really calling on you more as a literature scholar to kind of explicate it for us. But, but I, you know, I, <laughs> I shouldn't put you on the spot there. So you've been, you were tenured, but they fired you anyway. Is that what's happened? Every time I spoke up about the sexual misconduct at Linfield, my kids said, you know, can't they fire you? And I, I said, you know, I, I have a lot of privilege. I'm a tenured professor with an endowed chair and I'm a whistleblower. You can't retaliate against whistleblowers. And I guess I was wrong. So what happens now? I mean, obviously you're, I imagine, reeling from the craziness that just ensued. I mean, where do you go from here? What happens? I got to tell you, like where my heart is, is with my students in my Shakespeare class, whose professor was fired just hours before they were supposed to submit their final projects. And they didn't even know until they sent them to me and got an email bounced back that said I was no longer an employee. And now Linfield has started cracking down on anyone who supports me. So you can, you can see this posted online. Students wrote a lot of supportive messages in chalk on campus and the campus security hosed down the messages and students were told they would be fined for unauthorized use of chalk <laughs> if they continued to write in support. So then they started writing posters to put up in the residence halls and the residence hall advisors were told that they would be fired if they provided paper to their advisees. And so then faculty put up posters in their office windows at graduation. And according to my colleagues, campus security broke into the offices and tore down the posters and confiscated anything else as evidence. It seems just ridiculous on the outside, but I think when you're living in it, it's a, it's a pretty chilling environment right now. So we're saying Glenfield really doesn't like the Jews. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of wonderful people there, but I think they really need to, to be a lot more intentional about how they retaliate against people who bring forth good faith concerns about sexual misconduct. Right. Doesn't like the Jews, doesn't like those who speak up for women or men being harassed, doesn't like the whistleblowers, and is always trying to emulate Jesus, who no doubt would have modeled exactly this, right? This is exactly <laughs> what Jesus would do, right? Yeah. I mean, when the Oregon Board of Rabbis issued a statement calling for the president and the board chair to resign, a senior member of the Linfield board, who's actually the executive director of the American Baptist Ministry, called up the Oregon and board of rabbis and said that I was a pathological liar who was using my Jewish affiliation to bring other Jewish allies to my cause. 
And it, it did seem like if you wanted to diffuse accusations of anti-Semitism, that probably isn't the message that you'd want to be sending out. There is, I mean, this may be completely off base, but it feels like weirdly Shakespearean, this drama that you are finding yourself <laughs> at the center of. Are you thinking about that at all? It's funny you say that because when I was in this board of trustees meeting where the president was saying that I was disloyal and that I had to follow the teachings of Jesus, I honestly felt like suddenly I had become cast as Shylock in the trial scene in The Merchant of Venice and that I was basically watching a kind of version of my own forced conversion being staged in front of an approving audience of the leaders of the community. Well, Professor Daniel Pollock-Pelsner, we hope they take no pounds of flesh from you. (laughs) Are you hoping to get your job back or are you, much as you love your students, are you you done with Linfield? Well, that's for all along. I've been really informed by the the amazing research of a trauma psychologist, Jennifer Fried, who talks about institutional betrayal, why harm is so much worse when it's perpetuated by people who are supposed to be protecting you. So what I've been asking for is accountability for institutional betrayal by leaders at Linfield and then a, a real demonstrated commitment to institutional courage, what it means to support people who come forward and what the process of healing and some kind of restorative justice might look like. Professor Pollock Pelsner, Zygazint, as the Christians say, be healthy, be well, <laughs> and stay in touch. Thank you so much for coming on Unorthodox. Thank you and Yasha Koach for the attention that you are bringing to this. Yikes. Yikes. Now, just so you know, we reached out for comment to Linfield and did not hear back. If anyone's looking for a good Shakespeare professor, Shakespeare scholar, can we get like an endowed chair on Unorthodox for him? Totally. The Unorthodox chair in Shakespeare studies and standing up for people. He'll be the, the first to hold that chair. Give me me. J. Crew, as you may know, Unorthodox is part, it is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, the greatest magazine in the world, which publishes fascinating articles by a wide range of contributors about Jewish life and culture everywhere. One of our favorite contributors, based in one of our favorite cities in the world, Tel Aviv, is Dana Kessler. She's an amazing, amazing writer about music, culture, and all fun aspects of life. And this week, Stephanie Butnik sat down to talk to Dana about Turkish-Israeli music, which sounds really cool. Hi, Donna. Hi, Stephanie. Tell us a little bit about A Drop of Luck, this new compilation, who made it and what kind of music it features and why we should all be listening to it. First of all, you should listen to it because it's really, really good and it's really interesting. And the interesting thing is that the person who made it is actually a Polish record collector and DJ and uh, cultural anthropologist called Cornelia Biniciewicz. She's Polish and she actually lives in uh, Istanbul and she has a record label called Ladies on Records. And she finds gems of women uh, singers and women musicians from the 50s, 60s, 70s, vintage music made by women in different parts of the world. And she does compilations and DJs and writes about it and, and stuff like that. And she's interested in Israeli music as well. And she found really interesting connections between Israeli music and Turkish music from past decades. And this compilation actually has two parts, the sources track list and the adaptations track list. And it's sort of like covers, if you want, 
covers of Turkish female singers covering uh, Israeli music and Israeli female singers covering Turkish music. But it's not really covers even because the lyrics are changed. I mean, what they did in these adaptations is each respective country, they didn't translate the lyrics, they just wrote new lyrics in the other language. You have songs here from the 60s, 70s, 80s, up till almost today. And it's fascinating. I mean, there's, she found really fascinating connections between the two countries and their music. It's fascinating. It's really fun to listen to. I mean, what do we learn about Israel from understanding the role of this kind of music in the larger narrative, musically and, and beyond? Well, the thing is that there's sort of a similar uh, historic narrative to Israel and Turkey in the sense that Ben-Gurion in Israel and Ataturk in Turkey really tried to create like a modern Western society in their country and ignore the fact that they're in Asia and the whole Middle Eastern connections and just put that to the side and you know, try to ignore it. And the way they did it was culturally through music and, and other kinds of uh, popular culture. And since you can't really ignore where these countries are geographically and also many Israelis came from Arab countries, so you can't ignore uh, that background. So what happened in both countries that actually uh, Eastern sounds flourished in the underground. So in Turkey, they had music called Arabesque, which is like Arab-influenced Turkey. Turkish music. It's very Arabic. And in Israel, they have, up until today, it changed a lot over the years, Mizrahi music, which actually means Eastern music, which is influenced by Arabic sounds. And the Israeli Mizrahi music, there was like a sub-genre called the Turkish style, which actually what they did was copy this Arabesque music from Turkey, either cover it, you know, do these adaptations of, of songs, which was really easy to do because uh, there wasn't any intellectual uh, property agreement at the time between Turkey and Israel. So the songs were royalty free. So they could just do these covers, you know, from Israel to Turkey, from Turkey to Israel without paying royalties for the songs. So it was really easy to do and just write new lyrics in the other language. And that's what they did. So in Israel, they actually connected to their Eastern roots through this Turkish arabesque music. And in Turkey, it was the other way around. Like in the 70s, they saw Israel as this cosmopolitan, modern, Western place. You know, Tel Aviv was swinging and chic and cool. And what they did was they did cover versions of Israeli songs, but of Western divas, singers like Yafael Koni and Ilan Neat, which were like really these modern, you know, divas dazzling singers in sparkly gowns. So for them, Israeli music was actually something very Western and modern. That's why they did the covers. And it's like this really crazy back and forth. And she has on the Drop of Luck website, she has like this very long, extensive liner notes. She explains the whole history of the thing. And it's fascinating because like in each decade, it, it was different. And this is sort of a way to unearth and celebrate some of the earlier Mizrahi music in Israel, right? I mean, did it ever come out of the underground or is it part of the main pop culture now? Today, Mizrahi music is totally mainstream, but it's not the same Mizrahi music. It's not this Mizrahi music. Because like the Turkish style, which was really popular in Israel's Mizrahi music from the late 80s up until uh, 2000, is also called Musica Dikaon, which means depression music. It's really heavy and uh, with lyrics of loneliness and isolation. And, you know, it's not mainstream at all. 
So this music definitely isn't mainstream. What is today's Mizrahi music is much more Western influence and pop influence and dance influence, you know, with dancey beats. So that is super mainstream today. But some of these stars of the Turkish style actually became really big cult figures in Israel. You have uh, Avi Bitter, which was a really big singer in the Turkish style. And for the mainstream population, he's like this funny cult figure. And you have Mujde, the wonder kid. She's like this really kawaii girl. She looks like a preteen uh, Japanese idol. She was in the Turkish style in the in the 90s. She's all grown up now and she went back to Turkey as far as I know. But she's like really this cult figure because some of them were so, so extreme with really extreme videos and things that people unearth today as funny cult things. Donna Kessler, thank you so much for writing about A Drop of Luck, this new compilation. And thank you for joining us on Unorthodox to school us in Turkish-Israeli music. Thank you. It was really fun. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. To the mailbox. Uh, a lot of really good letters this week. One of them begins, Dear Mark, Podzilla, Cat Stevens, and LL Cool Jew. Wow. I forget which of us was Podzilla and who's LL. I'm Podzilla. Cat is probably Cat Stevens. That's my cat. Um, LL was Cool I LL- Jew. Congrats. Is that me? I, I no, totally that's forget. Leo. You're not the LL Cool Jew. You're Mark. It <laughs> oh, says I'm just Dear Mark. Mark. I'm just Mark. You're okay. Mark. Molly Marjorie Shrogus <laughs> in Arkansas. She is herself not Jewish, but she's always been drawn to Judaism. And she's she's been thinking about and considering Judaism. And she writes to us and says, I spent my quarantine catching up on every episode of Unorthodox. I just listened to one from January 13th in which Mark and Liel debate whether or not we should have Jewish missionaries. But then she says, look, I'm glad there are not Jewish missionaries because I experienced plenty of Christian missionaries as a kid, many of whom made me feel unworthy and others who brought me into a place that felt like a piece of clothing sewn against the grain. If I move deeper into the world of Judaism, it won't be because someone told me to do it. It'll be because I chose to go there especially since I live in rural Arkansas and I don't even know where to go to learn more about Judaism, let alone determine if I actually want to pursue conversion. So thank you. Also, if you have any Jewish literature, fantasy, sci-fi, board games, or other nerdy nonsense to recommend, I'm all ears. 
Sincerely, Molly Marjorie Strogan. So she's saying, look, I might get there, but if I get there, it'll be in part because you don't missionize me. I never dug the Christian missionaries from my own faith growing up. Molly. I love that. Such an important point. That's our MO. I also think it's, there must be someone in rural Arkansas who has a synagogue she can go uh, to. There, I have been to the synagogues in Fayetteville and Little Rock has, has some synagogue action. Yeah, there are. If anyone's in rural Arkansas, I know it's a medium-sized state. It's not like you all know each other or, or are all 10 minutes from each other. But if anyone wants to do some some cure of some outreach, you know, not in a creepy right way. Send us a note, not <laughs> in a creepy way. Just like we love you for Shabbat dinner. Um, if anyone wants to play sci-fi board games with her, yeah. um, Chabad of the Ozarks, get on it. Get get on it. Um, yeah. And does anyone have any fantasy sci-fi board game or nerdy nonsense to recommend to Molly Marjorie, whom I almost called Mollery? Send it to, to us on orthodoxatabletmag.com. This one comes into a, another great host of nicknames, uh, dear Corduroy Rob, high class motherfucker, and Podzilla. So Corduroy Rob, that's you, Mark. Hi, class motherfucker. That's you, Leo. And Podzilla, that's me. Um, Arden writes, after hearing Juliet Littman's interview last week, I want to say that I do agree there are still Jewish bagels and also there are Goyesha bagels. If I feel it needs to be toasted so I don't have to floss after, it's a Goyesha bagel. By the way, I love the difference of between Goyish and Goyesha. <laughs> this is spelled G-O-Y-I-S-C-H-E. So real. And by the way, Arden notes, I tried a blueberry bagel before judging. It's okay, but adds almost nothing to the bagel. More pointless than blasphemous. This is the greatest sentence I think we've received in a mail. More pointless than blasphemous. (laughs) Blueberry bagels, more pointless than blasphemous. I will defend cinnamon (laughs) raisin, Arden says, but not blueberry bagels. Each to their own, though. I'll stick with blueberry muffins and donuts. Shavua Tov. Arden, amazing letter. What of Arden? Blueberry bagels, more pointless than blasphemous. That's that's a bumper sticker if ever I saw one. Right. And now we will conclude with the most important voicemail of the week. Hi, I was just listening to your most recent episode, and my mouth sort of uh, dropped open when I heard Mark comment that he likes your basic ice cream, and he was referring to Ben and Jerry's and Haagen Dazs, which I view as high premium ice cream, so as opposed to maybe Dairy Queen or something more like Edie's, I suppose. Just wanted to let you know. My brother, I too love Dairy Queen. Nothing like a blizzard. You're right. By positing Haagen-Dazs and Ben and & Jerry's as the sort of low and the populist end of ice cream, thinking that there's like super weird artisanal ice creams higher up on the, the, the ice cream food chain, I actually kicked Dairy Queen and Tasty Freeze to the curb. I've done a lot of time in in Dairy Queen parking lots in my day, and um, I apologize to Dairy Queen, to the Dairy King, to the Dairy Princes and Princesses. You're saying the Dairy Queen is one high-class motherfucker is what you're saying. What were you doing in those Dairy Queen parking lots exactly? Were you necking? Stephanie, the answer is eating blizzards. Like, really, honestly, the answer is ice cream. Heavy petting? There was no, I was, it was not where I necked or pet heavily with Melon Camp. or mid, mid-era mid Billy Joel on the car radio, that would have been elsewhere. No, in grad school, when I needed to get away from the oppressive snootiness and, and pretension of grad school, I would get in my beat-up old jalopy and drive two miles north on Whitney Avenue to the Dairy Queen in the suburb of Hamden, where the only people there were, were like juniors from Hamden High, just teenagers who were themselves necking in the parking lot. But I just needed to get to real America. And the DQ... So you're the guy sitting in your car in the parking lot of the Dairy Queen <laughs> eating ice cream and watching teenagers make out. That's not creepy <laughs> that at all. It sounded so terrible. <laughs> it sounded so creepy. No, I, 
<laughs> a role played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman in the biopic. I would grab a friend and say, let's go get a blizzard Jesus. at Dairy Queen. And if the and people who said yes were my kind of people. And then some people would say, what? I'm, I'm not going to go to Dairy Queen. Argentile of the week is Noreen Malone, who returns to the show to discuss hosting the fifth season of Slate's Slow Burn podcast, which just started airing, and in which she details the lead up to the second Iraq war. Maureen, welcome back to the show. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. The last time you were on the show, you actually asked the Gentile of the Week question that spawned like a whole special episode (laughs) all about the Jewish American princess stereotype. So no pressure for this visit. (laughs) I'm so proud of that. (laughs) If our show doesn't pivot to a new identity yet again after this interview, we all will have failed. (laughs) So you're hosting the fifth season of the podcast Slow Burn, which is about the lead up to the Iraq war. Will you tell us how you decided to cover this specific topic? Well, it's actually funny. Stephanie knows my husband, Avi. Avi and I agree about most things in politics, but when we were seniors in high school and did not know each other, I was against the Iraq war and he was for it. And this has become a total trump card in our relationship. I can be like, yeah, but my instincts are better than yours, Iraq war. (laughs) (laughs) That's going from zero to Lamborghini pretty like oh you want the granulated sugar for this recipe um Iraq war yeah but I you know as a senior in high school I was doing senior in high school stuff I wasn't paying tons of attention to the news he was an unusual teenager and spent a lot of time interning at Slate and going to the library and reading old issues of New Republic he was sort of like plugged into the political discourse in a way that I wasn't at the time And I've always been interested in figuring out why all of these people at places where I went on to work, including Slate and the New Republic, were so in favor of the Iraq war. To be clear, we're talking about the second Iraq war, right? Not the one in 1991, but the one a little bit after 9-11. The W war, not the HW war. Yeah. Got it. And I'd lived through this history, but I wanted to sort of know it in more depth. And that is what Slow Burn does. It takes something that you maybe have lived through or maybe were really young for that you did it with Bill Clinton scandal, Watergate, Biggie, Tupac, David Duke. And it felt like Iraq was just ripe for that. And I had this personal interest in figuring out what I hadn't known at the time and why so many people seem to get it wrong who seem to know so much more than I did. And you start with the character to end all characters. <laughs> Someone so good. I mean, yeah. I, I knew about him because I was obsessed with this. But if you sort of listen to the show, like there's no way this is real. Like Noreen's making this up, right? Tell us about the great Ahmed Yeah, I got really obsessed with Ahmed Chalabi in the making of this podcast, and I'm so glad that you found the details interesting, too. So he he was this exile who left Iraq at the age of 14. His father was the Rockefeller of Iraq before they left. And then there was, you know, a series of military coups in Iraq. He was exiled to London. He went to MIT, University of Chicago, really sort of aristocratic, charming, smart guy who made it his life's mission to go back to Iraq. And overthrow Saddam Hussein and help the Iraqi people, but also maybe get his own family's place back. Maybe he wanted to be prime minister. He was just a really smart 
political operator, and he knew exactly which buttons to push and which people. He became friends with a lot of the neoconservatives and also liberal hawks to a certain degree. In Washington, he started an organization called the INC that he modeled after Mahatma Gandhi's organization. He will pop up later in the series because one of the things that he did was he also, he didn't just work sort of congressmen and intellectuals. He was friends with a lot of journalists, including famously Judy Miller. And so we're doing an episode on on some media stuff where that will come up. He supplied defectors and exiles to the CIA. He will come up in that episode. So he's just he's just sort of all over the map. How do you like dig into this story? Once you say, okay, lead up to the Iraq war is what I want to cover in season five. Where do you start? I mean, I remember sort of being in high school when this all happened. And like, I guess I, you know, more so than Watergate, which was season one of Slow Burn, where I was like, oh, great. I'll finally really understand this term that now we say gate after anything. I'll finally understand what it was like to live through. This is actually an example where I did live through this, but I didn't really understand the consequences or really the players or what was going on. How do you sort of immerse yourself in this world? I read a ton of books and just went down Google rabbit holes, basically. The first book that I read was Hubris by David Korn and Michael Isikoff. Robert Draper's To Start a War is really excellent. I had the basic narrative in my head, right? WMDs, the intelligence failures, all of that I had in my head. But what I was looking for was things like Akhmad Chalbi, where it vaguely rang a bell, but I didn't really know about it. And the more I sort of went into it on Google, I got more fascinated. You know, another example of that is there will be a later episode on a guy called Curveball, who was another Iraqi defector exile who turned out to be a fabricator that the CIA relied on. And I like hadn't, like I'd maybe heard that name, but I didn't know. And it just anything that sort of got me excited, like, oh my God, this reveals this bigger theme about the Iraq war or just, oh my God, this is a crazy story. I can't believe this happened. I would sort of go farther and farther down the rabbit hole. Noreen, one of the things that I found so interesting just listening to the first couple episodes is how contingent history is, right? You know, this one guy pulls together something he calls the Iraqi National Congress, which may be like four people in a fax machine and convinces the world that, you know, there's actually a movement there. But in the second episode, even more so, it turns out, tell us a little bit about how Senator John Warner gets turned on to the idea of regime change by the smallpox simulation. Colonel Randy Larson was a retired Air Force colonel who taught at the National War College and he did these war games, which were actually more like LARPing than video games. Okay, tell people what LARPing is. Live action role playing. And he did these really sort of elaborate versions of them. So he would come up with a scenario. And traditionally, back in the day, it used to be like, okay, you're the United States and the Soviets have assembled troops on this border or whatever. But what Randy was interested in was, okay, you're the United States and there's this threat from like a non-state actor and you can't just move your army to a place. What do you do? He got interested in this stuff during the 90s when terrorism in general, but also bioterror, was becoming more of a threat. So he was interested in doing a war game that would simulate what a smallpox outbreak would be like. So he did a really sort of professional version of it. He had all these like fake news reels made. He had former Senator Sam Nunn was, I think, playing the president. He got actual journalists, like practicing journalists, to come in and ask the kind of questions that people would ask in that situation. And so what he was trying to do was show lawmakers, not just sort of the scientific effects, right? In, in this scenario, I think over a million people were imagined to be killed, but also what it would do to society, like all of the ramifications that they couldn't think about. They did this war game in the summer of 2001, which is obviously before the terror attacks. And people were interested. John Warner was interested. But it was really after 9-11 that this briefing sort of got purchased. Dick Cheney got really interested in it. 
Dick Cheney was completely obsessed with bioterror. And so this was also in advance of the anthrax attacks. I had forgotten how much of a role they played. The second episode is all about anthrax, as you're explaining. And it sort of really resonated in this like COVID era. You have like Dr. Fauci audio talking about aerosolization of anthrax. And I'm just like, wait, when was this? So Basically, what are we supposed to learn from the anthrax portion of this, besides just like the hysteria that could be engendered that we have all lived through for the past year for sort of like this type of scary new thing? I mean, it really was the scary new thing, right? And so there had just a month earlier been, of course, 9-11, and all of a sudden you're starting to think, you know, threats can come from anywhere and these threats that we don't understand how to deal with, right? Like, that's the scary thing about something like anthrax or smallpox or COVID is that, you know, this is not an army you can defeat. This is a germ that gets out of control. And when people are faced with something uncontrollable, they sometimes overreact in the other direction. So actually, anthrax was a very contained thing. It was letters being mailed by, we still actually don't really know who. It wasn't a sort of epidemic or pandemic like what we're dealing with now, but you did see the way that society would react. Listening to this show now from the vantage point of 2021, it feels like you're describing a galaxy far, far away in a time long, long gone. I mean, it feels like our politics, like everything about how we do the business of government and arguing and media and public has changed so completely radically that this just feels like Jurassic Park. It's like frozen in ember. Like, Did you have a moment in which you basically tried to interject, as you said, like a war game simulation, almost like to try and imagine what society was like before Twitter, before Trump, before all this chaos? On the one hand, that's very true. We have an episode coming up on sort of the intellectuals and what role sort of blogs played in the debate. And one of the things that I was trying to make clear was that this wasn't the era of Twitter. Like a little magazine like the Weekly Standard or the New Republic could be super influential. And that felt like something from a different era. We have an episode coming up on Congress and, you know, there's this whole bipartisanship that was happening after 9-11, which again, feels like something out of a different era. But on the other hand, I actually feel really strongly that the moment we are living in, you can sort of trace it back to the Iraq war in many ways. How so? I think a lot of the disillusionment with government's ability to get something done, you could say that this gigantic failure that that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, people sort of lost faith in that. The isolationist turn, that was a contributing factor for the rise of Trump. You could certainly trace that back to, again, the, the sort of failures of the forever wars. I think some of the distrust in the media, you could maybe trace back to this, you know, the money that was spent. I think I think there's you can sort of like connect the dots in increasingly Baroque ways. You could even make an argument about the hollowing out of the middle class in certain ways, just the attention that the government was paying to this stuff and not paying to other stuff. It still haunts our politics, right? Like Hillary Clinton still had to answer for the fact that she had been in favor of the war. Donald Trump, who also had been in favor of the war, got a lot of juice from saying that he wasn't. And we are certainly living in the shadow of Trump. Noreen, after reporting this, and it's pretty clear from the first couple of episodes that you think the war was a terrible mistake. After having reported this so deeply and now produced this podcast that already in the first couple of episodes is making such a powerful case for ways in which it was misguided, could you ever support a foreign war? You know, I don't know. I don't think of myself as like a pure pacifist. And honestly, I would have had a much more informed view on this if you asked me this when I was 20 and I was reading about just and unjust wars. I think that there can be just wars. And I think that's actually something that does get missed in the discussion about this now, that a lot of people who either opposed it at the time or quickly opposed it once it became such a mess, have sort of revised it to say, oh, this is all about WMDs. This was all about lies that the Bush administration was telling. But for a lot of people, it was about sort of humanitarian intervention. Also, a lot of people who opposed it 
did also think that there were WMDs and that it still was not a war that deserved to be waged. I'm going to punt a little bit on my own question. I think I, I think the bar is really, really high for a country like the United States to go in somewhere. Certainly when countries are attacked, that's a different, that's a different thing. I'm glad you say that because thinking back on the way my friends and I thought about it, none of us were sort of into the United States having more territory, but all of us thought what an extraordinary humanitarian opportunity. Saddam Hussein was such a horrible man. And his people were so brutalized. And the fantasy of of liberating them, which is something, you know, that has been done in our past, if you think back to World War II, is it was a powerful war for Odysiac. Yeah. And I think World War II was a touchstone for a lot of people. A couple of the neocons had family who had been in the Holocaust. Kanan Makia, who was a prominent Iraqi exile. The liberal interventionist really looked to him as sort of a moral compass. He read a ton about Germany and sort of saw this as analogous. I think Hannah Arendt, like pretty explicitly inspired this book that he wrote called Republic of Fear. And then obviously some of the interventions that happened in the 90s inspired people. But, you know, what was different in Iraq was the lack of thinking about the broader planning and what this would mean and whether we were actually equipped to do it right. So, Noreen, we have chatted politely about wars and justice and intervention and and other trifles. I'd like to get to what is really important. And, And this is one of the points in which I could not disagree with you more vehemently. Why do you hate the MDASH? Why do I hate the MDESH? That is a deep cut, that article that I wrote. So I wrote an article maybe 10 years ago at this point, arguing that, you know, MDASHs were this sloppy, hacky tool that people over relied on. For the non-professional working journalists in our audience, the MDASH is the long dash, not the hyphen, but the longer dash that's used around clauses. And it's called an MDASH because it's in many typographies, it's the width of a lowercase M. Oh, that's why it's called that? Yeah, because there's an Oh, and the little one's an N-dash. Oh. And the, the medium size ones and dash. But but Noreen, please preach at us. Well, I have to admit that writing that article was like an addict who's been sober for a day declaring the drugs are bad and then <laughs> they go back to it in a week. I, in theory, think that people do over rely on them. It's sort of a um, you don't force yourself to have clarity of thought. You let yourself go into too many digressions. But I love, I love writing with M dashes. And when I notice it in my own writing that I'm doing too many, I do think back to that article and feel really bad. But one interesting thing about podcast writing is you kind of can't write that way. Narrative podcast writing, you have to just speak in these simple sentences because people are need to be able to follow it. So that actually has been really good training away from my natural M dash instincts. So Noreen, as you know, as a Gentile on this show, a two-time returning guest, You get to ask us a question. Do you have a question for us about anything Jewish? My question is, if you are a non-kosher person, a Gentile like me, and you go out to dinner with people who keep kosher, is it rude to order something that clearly violates the laws of kosher? Like a shrimp or pork taco situation? Yeah, yeah. First of all, this is the greatest question since your last question. (laughs) I just want to say this question is great because it starts off by referring to Gentiles as non-kosher people, as if you yourself (laughs) would be trafed to eat, which is just a great innovation in the term. (laughs) But Leah, you you were going to actually answer the question she meant to ask. Yeah, although I do realize that my answer is incredibly idiosyncratic and personal. So I grew up strictly kosher, then uh, sort of meandered into the three bacons a day territory for a the long, long time. as we call it. Into the pigsty, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, and now I am, I am fully back on board and keep kosher. 
Really few things give me greater pleasure than to go out and sort of live vicariously through the plates of others. <laughs> to kind of smell the the, the sweet, wafting cheeseburger. <laughs> the sweet, sinful smells of sizzling bacon. I love that. To me, it kind of brings olfactory harmony to the world. Like you sit there and and not only is it is it pleasing just in this kind of, you know, Proustian memory invoking ways, but it's also <laughs> there's something I think very right about this, this understanding that, you know. Kosher is such a deeply intimate process. That's about you and the choices that you make. It is not necessarily about this kind of attempt to regiment the world or control everything around you. Or, or It's not about the strictures and the denials. It's about the choices and the acceptance that you personally make. So I kind of actually love sitting there being like, you know what? I don't miss it. I'm happy with my choice. I like that. You know, it's interesting because McKay Coppins was on the show and his question was like, if I wanted to have people over for dinner who were kosher, what do I need to do to my house? And I have a theory that because of Noreen, you and I went to dinner recently. We are now all reorienting ourselves to socializing. And like, I'm not surprised that this includes a new way of thinking. Like, like Leo, you and I go out to lunch and dinner all the time. I always forget you're kosher. Like, I never think about it. But now it's like, as we sort of say, like, what am I comfortable with? What are the people I'm with comfortable with? I actually think we're all starting to think about that a little bit more. I think it's like there's a bit of more negotiation about what kind of restaurant you're going to go to. You know, like I went to the meatball shop with someone who's kosher. It turns out all their meatballs, even the veggie meatballs, are cooked in pork. <laughs> so like there are certain places that like it's helpful to know that in advance so you don't show up with someone. Like I would never pick a place, even if like I'm going out with gluten-free friends, I'm always like you pick the place that's of your comfort level. That doesn't mean you need to end up at a kosher restaurant, but it means you're probably not going to like a dim sum situation where like pork is everywhere. I will say as someone whose kosher root is that we're vegetarian, a vegetarian house. So we eat out all the time with people who are ordering meat in front of us. And my wife is such a, my role model, I mean, she's been a vegetarian since she was 18 and I went veggie when around the time we got married. And she's such a role model and she always, she never makes it about what other people do because personal choices are personal choices, right? And if people ask her about her choices, she'll tell them. And that's as far as the evangelizing goes. And I think that's totally fine. But I would agree with Stephanie that maybe ask your friend, is it okay if we go to the oyster shack, right? Like don't take the kosher person to the place that literally serves one thing, which is pork hot dogs on the boardwalk or oysters or something. Like make sure there are options for them. But once you're there, I say you order whatever you want. Yes. Once you're in the door of an outdoor structure of a place. like You do you. I don't unless you're like sharing food. We want Noreen to be the best Noreen she can be. And if that's somebody <laughs> eating non-kosher hot dogs, that's fine. I also like, I don't want someone who's commenting on my food. I don't want to go to dinner with someone who's like, oh, you're ordering that. I mean, the preachiest people, it's never around kosher food. It's always someone who's like, you're eating bread. Right. It's always someone with one of the weird diet things. It's a fad diet thing. It's never- That the, they insist is actually real and has some real reason to exist. Be like, oh no, I, I don't eat vegetables that are orange. Be like, what? Right. That's not a thing. <laughs> At all. <laughs> the actual scenario that gives me anxiety is when I'm with my kosher in-laws, my husband who does not keep kosher, and I, his Catholic wife, and then he orders something non-kosher. I get anxious about them right. judging what he's ordering. And then is it my fault that he's rejecting their traditions? And I'm like, just don't order the pork. It is entirely your fault. No, right. It is right. no one else's fault that he chose to reject this tradition. It is No, you it's and like a master of none where he Live with orders that guilt. pork in front of his parents just to like turn, twist the knife. Yeah. Not that we can talk about yeah. that show anymore. Uh, well, we hereby give you a pass. If your in-laws ever think it's you, it's not you. It's Avi. <laughs> Thank you. He started eating pork, I bet, before he ever met you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He started eating pork when he supported the Iraq war. Avi, wrong about pork, wrong about the Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> right about marriage, wrong about pork, wrong about the Iraq war. Noreen Malone, thank you so much for being our guest. And we are so excited to send everyone 
to the most important podcast they can listen to after their weekly fill of unorthodox, which is Slow Burn. Do you have next season planned? Are you on for season six? And if so, what do you got cooking in lard? I am not, but Joel Anderson, who hosted the season on Biggie and Tupac, is doing a season on the LA riots. And Mm. he's already working on it. I think it's going to be really, really good. Noreen, thank you so much for stopping by again. We can't wait to listen to the rest of the show. Thank you. Bye, guys. Mazel tovs. First off, a big mazel tov to my daughter, Elizabeth Adelaide Oppenheimer, on becoming a bat mitzvah this coming Shabbat. Elizabeth oh. Adelaide. Elizabeth Adelaide. Elisheva Adina. E-A-O. Those are some strong, strong monogram there. A lot of vowel action. Don't even come near her name unless you can start a word with a vowel. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take one more. I'm going to read the letter from our friends, the rabbinic couple, Natalie and Benj. They say, we'd like to share a mazel tov on your episode. It relates to your last episode in which you talked about upsharin which, as I learned recently, is now being done for both girls and boys. This is the first haircut at age three. Mazel tov to Hannah Jo Jacobson on her upsharin and becoming a big sister. Mazel tov to Rabbi Ali Jacobson and Whitney Jacobson on their newborn son, born April 27th at 4.27 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're so happy for you and your growing and lovely family. Love, Rabbis Natalie and Ben. I love that. We also have another listener, Mazel Tov. This one goes out to Stephanie Gorlick, our super listener. And she wrote a book called The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. And this book just won the 2020 AASECT Book Award. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, or as she puts it, the organization that credentials every sex therapist, educator, and counselor in the country. Which means the book is good AF. Mazel Tov, Stephanie. She sent us all copies of the book, and we are so proud of you. I have another big milestone Mazel Tov to Celine Alderman, who, as you may remember, shared her conversion story with us a few years ago. She even let me meet her outside the mikvah after her bait din with a recorder and, and let me yes. interview her. And so we're grateful to her. This week marked eight years of her being cancer-free, and we are so, so, so happy oh, for her. So happy. Celine, thanks for staying in touch. Leo, do you have a Mazel Tov? Um, You know, I think we'll be remiss on a week like this if we didn't conclude uh, the show with just one somber moment. In Jewish tradition, often happy moments and sad moments are sort of intertwined to remind us uh, of of the vicissitudes of life. And so I'd like to take this moment and remember the 45, I believe, uh, men and boys who died in the tragedy on Haumeron in Israel during Lag Baumer, crushed to death uh, after a stampede broke out. May their memory be a blessing. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live and we're going to be doing it again to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com for swag, for shirts, onesies, mugs, mugsies. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our tablet fellow is Ellie Blyer. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our Hillel president is Melissa Wish. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Yisrael Engel of Beis Menachem in Denver, Colorado. And we come to you again from the scattered locations, which I'm just going to call Argo Studios. I feel like the spirit of Argo Studios lives on in our closets and our basements. And, and, and we send out big love and hugs to Paul Ruest. Shalom, friends.
a vegetarian house, which by the way, means we don't eat fish. The number one pet peeve of the past decade, if I tell you I'm vegetarian, don't say do you eat fish because vegetarian actually means you don't eat fish or meat. Wait, so if you're a pescatarian, you do eat fish or you don't eat fish? Correct, that means you eat fish and presumably then you're excluding other meats. Vegetarian means you eat vegetables, right? Okay, and dairy, whatever, but it means you don't eat meat. 